Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him, Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. A stunning boutique catalogue of 60 race fillies and broodmares has been put together for the English Chairman's Sale at Riverside on Friday night, May the 7th. The Chairman's Spectacular will be the culmination of a memorable week, which will also take in the Australian Weanling Sale and the Australian Broodmare Sale. The Chairman's Catalogue features Group 1 winning mares like Natoya, Celebrity Queen, Pippi, In Her Time, who's in Fold to I Am Invincible, El Dorado Dreaming, and Dance, Dance, Dance. Another headliner will be Angel of Truth's Dam, Scarlettini, who'll be offered in full to Fastnet Rock. Many stakes-winning mares will be offered, and there are siblings to the likes of Sunlight and Forbidden Love. There'll be a buzz in the auditorium when Kerr Cheval enters the ring. She's a half-sister by Schnitzel to world champion Winks, and she's in full to Capitalist. Wildcard entries for the chairman's sale remain open until April 23rd. It's Friday night, May 7. English presents a unique sale in a unique atmosphere. The 2021 chairman's sale. Bill Mitchell was just 11 years old when his father, Major James Mitchell, and mother Edith brought he and brothers Arthur and Harry from the rural county of Norfolk in England to the New South Wales Hunter Valley. Major Mitchell had purchased Yarraman Park Stud from former legendary jockey George Moore and intended to go into commercial thoroughbred breeding in his adopted country. Bill spent a lot of time around thoroughbreds in his early years at Yarraman, but the thought of becoming a racehorse trainer didn't germinate until he returned to his native England at age 21 and got a job with the respected trainer Fulk Johnson Horton. After one chilly winter on the Berkshire Downs, he returned to Sydney where he spent nine very rewarding months with Neville Begg. And after that, he was fairly intent on a training future. But not just yet. He went to California and spent two years with decorated trainer Neil Drysdale, who was based at Santa Anita, but sent Bill to other places as his travelling foreman. Back to Australia, and young Bill launched straight into a training career at Scone, a modest start to a career that would eventually take him to the upper echelon of Australian trainers. In 2005, Serious back issues forced Bill out of the training ranks into the world of bloodstock consultancy. Today, he operates Mitchell Bloodstock in partnership with his son, James, and it is so good to catch up with a bloke I haven't been able to corner for an interview in a long, long time. Bill Mitchell, great to catch up. John, so nice to hear from you. You know, uh, I used to enjoy my visits to your stables at Randwick with television crews when you were training all of those wonderful horses in the 1990s. You were always very accessible 
very generous with your time and very upfront about your horses. I think it was a new era of, you know, understanding the press, the days of not not communicating through the press were, were that was an era of change when when the press you know it's important to have a relationship and to uh, give give full disclosure mm. where possible you spent the last 4 years of your training career based at Caulfield now what was the reason for that bill did a shortage of stabling in sydney have anything to do with it well, always at Ramwick, there's a shortage of stables, and the trainers there today are all desperately needing more stables. There just isn't room, and I think I had 30 stables at Ramwick. Well, mm. in the end, you know, I'd had some luck in Melbourne, and I just needed to have a change of mm. a change of everything in a way, and and mm. uh, try to expand it. So, uh, Caulfield, they offered me basically anything up to 90 stables. Mm. It's uh, Slightly different, slightly different to, you, you know, it's just constantly not having enough room. Yeah. It's frustrating. Bill, I just had a quick look at the records and it appears your very last runner was a horse called Clippity at Werribee and your very last winner was a horse called Skybar in a maiden three-year-old at Yarra Valley on the 22nd of October 2005. The jockey was Jason Benbow. Yes, well, there you go. It's interesting. (laughs) You you know, you think you're only going to have good horses and be in the best places, but actually, you know, all trainers have to go to the provincials and the country meetings, especially with prize money like it is now. Mm. So, you know, every horse, I think you put it where it it can do its best. Mm. You had a bad back too, didn't you, at around that time? In fact, it had been niggling away for quite quite a few years and it had a bit to do with your retirement. Well, it's just constantly giving me a bit of grief and there's just no time to sort things like that out when you're a full-time horse trainer. You're working mm. every day and it just gets, gets at you all the time. If you've got a bad back, anyone that's had a bad back knows the issues and the mm. amount of grief it causes you um so yeah that was one thing i had you know numerous a, a sort of it was just a, a a number of things added together that yeah. made me think well do i really want to do this into my 50s mm. and uh it just it just uh the cons outweighed the pros and as far as i was concerned that was that was that was that mm. Well, you got Mitchell Bloodstock going quickly with young James and together you've provided a very great service to many valued clients, including the Chuns, Kenneth and Merrick Chun, who live in Hong Kong, and you identified and purchased a cult for them at the Caraca Ready to Run sale. Uh, They took him back to Hong Kong. They called him Beat the Clock. And he retired only recently, Bill, and I believe he had four Group 1s under his belt. Four Group 1s and 10 million Australian dollars. Mm. So he was a great horse for them, a great horse. And, and um, of course, as they always do, their retired horses get sent home to uh, have a good life in retirement. And uh, he is at Living Legends where he shares a paddock with Prince of Penzance. So mm. he could go. 
the sprinter and the stayer, but uh, he gets mm. bossed around a bit. But he's only been there a couple of months, so he's still settling in. As well as contributing to the day-to-day running of Mitchell Bloodstock, you also wore the racing manager's hat for the Sedgenho Group for some nine years. And during those years, the Sedgenho format was very diversified, breeding, selling, spelling, and racing a good number of horses themselves in those famous red and yellow silks, mostly fillies, Bill. Mostly fillies, yeah, but they raced up to 60, 60 in work at, 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 at mm. some point. But um, now they've got a 50-strong broodmare band and a lot of those were fillies they raced, uh, fillies they raced. Mm. Uh, it's an extraordinary farm and um, the winners being produced from Sedgino is is exceptional. Um, <clears throat> top-class horses coming off the farm and they have a top top-class broodmare band. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think they're in a good spot going forward at Sedgenau. One of your key roles was to oversee the racing careers of Sedgenau horses, as you've just mentioned, which were spread across a large number of stables, which meant you had constant contact with the trainers involved. Yes, correct, correct. I don't interfere at all with the training of them. It's just, you know, working out bit of programming and programming and where we what plans one might have with the horse and when one needs to go, you know, change stables to somewhere a bit easier, things like that. Mm. Fairly straightforward, but there's quite a lot of early morning phone calls and you're you're on call all yeah. the time. But uh, it's it's interesting and it's it's something I enjoy. So it was a good fit for me at that time. Yeah. At that time to, to do that job with Kevin and the whole Maloney family. Now, during that nine years, and with your back not hurting quite as much, were you ever once tempted to give it another crack? No. <laughs> no. No. I get off asked that question a lot. Yeah. No, I'm really not tempted to give it another crack, certainly not in the format that we do it in this country. Mm-hmm. So, and I really, I don't have the time to set up a off-course training complex and mm. try to do it that way. It's difficult in this country. There's very few people have succeeded doing that, mm. very few, for whatever reason. But um, oh, the thought of you know having 30 people working for you again, and I still see a lot of my old staff. Some of them work for me for anything up to twenty years. Mm. So, but it's just, it's just, it's a very big commitment to to take on a stable that's of sufficient size that it's going to be commercially viable. Let's go back to the wonderful adventure you experienced as an eleven-year-old, and that was in nineteen sixty-eight. Mum and Dad brought their three young sons to a faraway place and settled them in a lush valley on a famous property once owned by a very famous jockey. Were you scared to death or was it all great fun at age 11? It was fantastic. No, no, I don't think we ever thought thought about it much. We, we just came out with our parents and um, settled in very quickly. Went to Scone Public School for a year. Oh, I've never had it so good. <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, having been yeah. at boarding school in England for three years, yeah. So uh, I loved it, and um, and 
I don't think any of the three of us would for a second think about <laughs> leaving Australia. No, no, good. To live elsewhere. Well, you were around horses right through your teens on the farm. You were handling them, you were riding them, and you, most importantly, were developing an affinity with them every day. Could you feel yourself getting closer and closer to this wonderful breed of horse? Yes, you do. It's all those young years um, working with with thoroughbreds. You do get very attached to them, and um, not as individuals, but as a as a just just the whole the life with the thoroughbred is gets in your blood, I think. And yeah. And it's hard to shift it, but uh, definitely you learn a lot of skills just working with right from pony club, learning learning about the animals, learning how to manage them, how to how to handle them, how you know how to look after them properly, understanding their ailments, all that stuff is just mm. years and years of just living around them, I guess. Yeah. Mm. Well, the Major got started as a commercial breeder, but he found the going very tough. He was importing English stallions and he soon realised, didn't he, that he was only sourcing the ones they really didn't want. What were some of his early acquisitions? Oh, bought a stallion out called Straight Master. They came by ship in 1969, I guess. Mm. Came by ship with a with a bunch of mares. I think about a dozen mares came out from mm. England. But uh, straight master, Sirocco, American horse called Fleeting Orbit, English mm. horse. Uh, it was there was a stream of them. Memento, Rutland, sort of started to understand that you needed to get more speed in. Yes, um, but really, it's only since they started to source Australian. Uh, speed, you know, the, the local, the local blood that they started to go better with the likes of Catbird, um, and more recently, of course, um, I'm Invincible mm. and Hellbent's the new kid on the block. That's a whole new bloodline, the Invincible Spirit line. But mm. he speaks for himself. I'm Invincible, absolutely outstanding stallion. Mm. It's it's changed everything at uh, at Yarram. And his stock are keenly sought after at all of the yearling sales, including the recent English sale where they sold for amazing money. Yeah, they do. They do. They make. Um, they do make a lot of money. They, he throws extremely good-looking stock. He stamps them. They're all bays. Um, very good-looking horses. So, apart from the fact that they they're. They're outstanding racehorses. They they're great sales horses as well. And he's, he's isn't he a, isn't he a good looking son of a gun himself? I am invincible. He sure is. Big horse, big, magnificent looking horse. He really is. Yeah. Now, just getting back to the major part of your early education, it took place at a very famous school, Cranbrook, where you lived That's- in. I presume. Happy days. Yeah, I did six years, my high school years, all at Cranbrook. So, yeah, it was a good school. I enjoyed it. Uh, my son went there. Mm. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's an outstanding school. And uh, to this day, I'm still, I, I still appreciate the fact that I was sent off to board there. It's, uh, it's, uh, it was a great, you know, great way to spend 
some of the best years of your life, I suppose, school. I was happy enough to get out of there as well. But uh, I did do all my high school years there. Yeah, you had a very good school, very lucky. Well, slowly but surely, a fascination with the art of horse training started to surface and you decided to seek early education in your native England, where you were lucky enough to land a job with the respected Fulk Johnson Horton on the Berkshire Downs. He had some pretty good horses during your stay there, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He had the best sprinter in Europe, double form, and he had the best uh, middle-distance horse, Il de Bourbon, uh, some fantastic fillies. Rose Bowl was one. Rose Bowl was his best. She just retired when I went there, but uh, she was absolutely outstanding and, of course, assisted in the Jinsky. So that was the type of horse, the stock, Mm. that went through the stable, a comparatively medium-sized stable for for England. He didn't have uh, hundreds in work. It was about 50 or 60 in the stable, but uh, it was Mm. very successful. Mm. And and uh, Eve, Volk's daughter, runs the same place now. I went and visited them last year, the year before, when we could travel. Mm. I call in, have a couple of nights with them and still stay in touch. And she's doing very well mm. training uh, out of the Woodway stables there at uh, Blueberry. Mm. Was Johnson Horton uh, a man who would impart his knowledge or did you have to ask him? Yeah, yeah, we'd have this lot of discussion every day in that old English training. You'd stop for breakfast and we'd sit around the breakfast table, probably mm. any any jockeys and different people, and the discussions were all about racing. And mm. you, you probably asked plenty of questions and uh, mm. and uh, listened, and, and and it was it was interesting. It was a very interesting place to be. Mm. See, Bart Cummings wasn't a bloke to be throwing. Uh, consultation around uh, in, in a free-handed way, but if you cornered Bart and asked him a question, he'd talk all day about it. Yeah, once you got him going, Bart, he, yeah. he was yeah, he was great like that. Yep, you'd have 10 minutes in the, the track work when there wasn't much going on and you'd have a chat with Bart. There was He was yeah. always, uh, always very free with, uh, you know, with uh, experience and mm. his his ways, he was he was a fantastic uh, mentor for anyone lucky enough to spend time with Bart Cummings. Mm. Well, one winter on the chilly Berkshire Downs was enough to send you scurrying back to Sydney, where you gained a nine-month tenure with the great Neville Begg. What a stroke of luck! What a stroke of luck! Exactly, I had to keep going down to see him, and he. <laughs> Keep chasing him to get me a job, mm. and I was on—I was sort of in my early twenties still, so I was still wanting to travel the world a bit. So mm. I was already, you know, looking, sort of thinking about going to America to work, and and in the in the mean in that while I was when that came up, I moved from Neville's, but I had nine months with Neville Beck, and mm. we, uh, you know, what a lovely man, still mm. still going extremely well today. Mm. Um, I know the whole family, of course, and um, yeah, it was it was a it was a part of my education. Spending mm. time with Neville Begg, lucky to be there. Bill, I'm delighted to say that Neville joined me on this very podcast uh, nine or ten months ago. Uh, we caught him in a reminiscent mood, and uh, he was just fascinating to listen to. 
Oh yeah, yes. What a what a lot of fantastic horses. Neville Beg trained. Mm. Yep. Well, Outstanding horseman. Following that nine months, you still felt your education was incomplete. So this time off you go to sunny California, where you landed a job with Neil Drysdale, a fascinating bloke. Uh, he was actually English-born, wasn't he? But he never yes. trained horses in England. No, he he didn't. He uh, he worked for Lucian Lauren, the famous trainer. Um, I don't fully recall how he ended up in America, but uh, he he went from Lucian Lauren to uh, Charlie Whittingham, and uh, mm. he's only ten years older than me. He was I was about twenty three or. 23 when I went to America and he was uh, only a young man um, as a working he was a private trainer for uh, Mr. Robertson from Texas oil people mm. and uh, so it was quite a small stable but uh, it was we moved east to west coast and uh, saw a lot of America from the racing point of view and he uh, was highly successful and still is mm. in a top trainer there for 40 or 50 years, I guess. Mm. If people are wondering why the name Lucian Loren rings a bell, uh, we probably should mention that he was the man who trained Secretariat. Correct. Goodness me, what a horse. Mm, exactly. He was the, probably the greatest ever, I think. I went through customs in America 10 years ago and they said, when I was going to a horse sale, and they said, oh, you're here for a horse sale, customs. And I said, yeah. And then he said, well, who's the greatest horse in the world? And I, I, I said, well, you'll say Secretariat. I might say Farlapple. Mm. <laughs> but it was like a trick question to, as you were going through customs. And that, yeah. he, he, that's the only horse they know is Secretariat yeah, in America. Had he not won the Belmont Stakes the way he did, Maybe the legend wouldn't be as strong. The winning margin was 31 lengths in the Belmont. You can't get your head around it. No, well, the footage is extraordinary, isn't it? He just mm. kept running away from them. Mm. I actually I saw him in Kentucky once. He's a magnificent horse. Oh, you visited, did you? Went to the yeah. stud farm? Yeah. yeah, I did. I saw him there at uh, Gainsway. Mm. So it was a fantastic farm. Uh, Gainsway was he? No, not Gainsway. He was at uh, the Hancock Farm. Uh, Claiborne. And Claiborne. That's where he was. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yep. Now, Bill Neil Drysdale was best known perhaps for a Belmont Stakes win with AP Indy, and he won a Kentucky Derby with a horse whose progeny are well known in Australia, Fusiichi Pegasus. He did. Yep, he did. He he trained a filly while I was there called Bold and Determined. I think she won nine Group Ones. She beat uh, she beat Genuine Risk. Mm. Um, yeah, he had another filly called Princess Rooney. But uh, those obviously the Belmont and the Kentucky Derby are the biggest the biggest races in America. And uh, mm. yeah, he won both of those. He had a lot of good horses. For, again, not a huge stable, probably fairly small and selective. Mm. Well, by the time you got back to Australia, you were champing at the bit to become a trainer and you kicked off in Scone. 
where did the owners come from? Oh, just old friends and people and family friends gave me a couple of cast-off horses and, uh, yeah, I I, uh, I was sort of didn't want to stay. That was the old course in Scone. It wasn't much of a training facility. Mm. So I was on the lookout to go somewhere else. And, and um, But I did have a few runners out of Scone, just training them out of the yearling barn at Yarraman. But um, yeah. then, I bought, then I bought some stables at Warwick Farm. And moved to Warwick Farm. It was a fairly slow start. I took about three horses mm. down there, and it, it took a few years to get to get rolling. But uh, that, that's what that's the way it is. And yeah. <laughs> young and enthusiastic, yeah, you sort of don't realise how hard it's going to be in front of you. you how long there, it takes to set up a stable. You were there five years, Bill, at the farm. Yeah, I think five or six years. Yep, yeah, mm. I was, and uh, then I got offered stables at Randwick, and. Uh, I moved, I did move to Randwick. Now, you told me during the period at Warwick Farm, and I didn't know this and I doubt that many of our listeners will, you trained a few horses in that era for Kerry Packer. Yes. Pretty ordinary ones. Well, he had a stallion called Longboat who they decided to breed some thoroughbred mares to, so they went and bought some quite nice mares, some of them. Mm. and um, bred them to Longboat. And I think about a dozen of them came in and out of my stables, and I did win a race at Kembla Grange with one, but mm. I think they got sent home. Most of them got sent home pretty quickly to return to their polo careers. Yeah. Um, he obviously wasn't uh, – was never – I was just a, a staying an English stay at Longboat. I can't remember yeah. his pedigree, but uh, it, it really didn't work, the thoroughbred breeding. Mm. I think they were breeding them like polo ponies at Elliston. And yeah. They were all coming down terribly immature and and uh, unfortunately pretty limited, but I, mm. that stallion certainly didn't go on to be much of a stallion anywhere. But, uh, yeah, the green and white silks with the red cap <laughs> went, went around a few times. Where was he years later when he had mahogany and merlin? <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't very interested, was he, in the racing, really, like in owning racehorses anyway. Only on Easter Saturday and Easter Monday yeah. uh, when he'd front up at Randwick with uh, a massive amount of punting money. Interesting years, weren't they, when he was betting big? My goodness. <laughs> My goodness. Well, you exploded onto the big stage in the spring of 1989 and I can remember calling this race, and I can still see from the planet racing away to win the Epsom by a pretty big margin. Yes, Grant Cooksley. We couldn't get anyone to ride him. Mm. The lightweight and Cooksley, as tall as he was, could ride light. And I uh, wasn't expecting probably to lead on him in that race, but he, he just went straight to the front and mm. uh, dominated. He'd won the Stan Fox the year, 12 months before. He's a very, very good horse. Mm. Um, yeah, he was pretty dominant in that Epsom, that's for sure. Now, you mentioned Grant Cooksley. Uh, he hadn't been here long. You certainly uh, got him up and going in Sydney. That's 32 years ago, Bill, and I think he was about 30 then. But I'm sure he still has an occasional race ride in New Zealand. 
Well, he certainly was 12 months ago. I went on a golf trip with him um, a couple of years ago, and he was he was still riding. But I'm not sure if he is anymore. He, mm. But he would have been 60. He would have been 60 when he stopped riding, I reckon. Yeah, mm. close to it. You close got to, to train a remarkable horse called Stylish Century in the spring of 1989. In fact, his first run for you was in the W.S. Cox Plate, and you went painfully close to a memorable first-up win. Al Murad got you in the last couple of strides. Yeah, what a horse he was. He was a fantastic racehorse, stylish century. Black, front runner, very exciting horse to watch. Um, mm. Yeah, and I did training for about 18 months, I think. So uh, it was interesting times, um, but... Uh, it was uh, he was a wonderful racehorse. We took him to Japan for the Japan Cup, um, and won a Victoria Derby, and uh, just got beaten on a wet track. He didn't like those wet tracks much in the AJC Derby, but uh, he was a fabulous racehorse. In the Victoria Derby, he didn't actually lead all the way, did he? He didn't. Uh, he didn't rush to the front. In fact, I don't think he took over until they turned into the back straight. I think he he went round that first turn, that hairpin bend, mm. past the winning post, um, and then he sort of made up his mind that you know he wanted to roll forward. But um, he blew the start. He had a, he blew the start in the race. He used to do that a little bit. Mm. But if he didn't lead, he he seemed to lose interest, and so he was always best leading, even if even if he was uh, you know could win a twelve hundred meter race. He, he uh, yeah. He led the Victoria Derby. He was just too brilliant, too brilliant for them. Mm-hmm. Won by a big space, didn't he, in the Victoria yeah. Derby? What about his second to Dr. Grace in the AJC Derby? If memory serves me rightly, he led, but he got hammered in front that day. Yeah, Doc Chapman had Dr. Grace and he also had a horse called Plum Jam. And oh. uh, Wayne Harris rode Plum Jam and he got up as close as he could to Siley's century and just kept roaring at him. Mm. And uh, anyway, it did, its, it did its job. He didn't quite have the petrol in the finish. But it was a wet track also that day. And for him, for him, anything wet was, was, was a disadvantage for him. Mm. Now, Bill, you were not his first trainer and you were certainly not his last. He had seven trainers. Goodness me, did he? Seven trainers, yeah, mm. and I think the owner was the seventh. So he sort of fancied himself as a horse trainer and eventually got the opportunity to be one. But mm. Noel Doyle had him first and he stayed with me in Sydney for his two-year-old autumn campaign. He stayed at our stables. And that's mm. when I first struck the horse and, and uh, I knew Noel Doyle. He was an old friend. And um, I first struck Stylish Century and, and the owner's then, so uh, then they asked me to train him. Well, you don't you don't say no to that when you're a young trainer. <laughs> no, I won't say. <laughs> hey, Bill, you mentioned the Japan Cup in 1990, an exciting trip, an exciting adventure, but it turned into a disaster when he unloaded Kevin Moses and he was loose for quite some time before the start. He was obviously vetted. Were you happy for him to run? Well, I think he wasn't. He went sort of. He bolted around the 
uh, half the track anyway. He probably shouldn't have run. I think here we would have scratched him. Probably nowadays you'd have scratched him, but he was, you know, they, they, he ran and obviously just getting loose before the start. That's nearly the end of any chance you've got. Um, he was a very, he was a brave horse. He tried hard. He wasn't a big horse, but he was, he was a very talented. But that day, that was, I heard this huge roar go up in that big crowd in Japan. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that's about. <laughs> looked up at the screen. <laughs> looked up at the screen and there's my horse. Oh, goodness me. With no jockey on, yep. Now, where did he finish, Bill? I can't recall. Tenth, Midfield? I, I think he finished 10th. Did he? Yeah. I think he finished 10th, yep. Um, yeah, he was there at the 200, as he would be, and mm. just to be good, better loosen up won that race. Bill, just before we leave Stylish Century, can I ask you to confirm or refute a story that was doing the rounds when you were in Melbourne on one occasion? We got the story back in Sydney that the horse had all but drowned in the Flemington Equine swimming pool. Yeah, he did. He went under, which is um, sometimes they, you know, they, as soon as they go under, they seem to just go to the bottom. Um, yeah, and a couple of people helped dragged him out of there with uh, Dick's, Dick Monaghan, the owner's daughter, was looking after him at the time. Mm. And, um, yeah, he did. He, he, he flipped over in the pool and was heading to the bottom. And I think it was, a, gee, I wish I could remember who it was, but mm. a couple of guys ran to the rescue and dragged him out and actually was only it was just before the Australian Guineas and he got beaten by Zabil, but I don't think he was it, it takes takes quite a while for them to come right if you think any sort of issue with their lungs and he must have got a little bit of water in there mm. or something. But um yeah, that, that's a that's a true story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bill we'll just pause for a break on the podcast. Back with Bill Mitchell after this. While Royal Randwick has been capturing the spotlight, the Hawkesbury Race Club has been putting the finishing touches on preparations for its popular post-Championships Cup Day on Saturday, May the 1st. The meeting will be highlighted by the Group 3 Hawkesbury Guineas worth $200,000, the Hawkesbury Gull Cup of the same prize money, the Group 3 Hawkesbury Crown for the Phillies and Mares, carrying $175,000, and the listed quality sprint, the Hawkesbury Gold Rush, over 1,100 metres with a purse of $140,000. With Metropolitan Saturday prize money applying to the meeting, there will also be a Class 2 tab highway with prize money of $75,000. And remember, the highway prize money will increase to $100,000 in July. The Hawkesbury Standalone Post-Championships meeting is becoming one of the most popular of the racing year. Fashions on the field, pop-up bars, food trucks and live music will all contribute to the great carnival atmosphere at Hawkesbury on Saturday, May the 1st. My guest is former top trainer Bill Mitchell. A couple of good fillies we should mention. Electric won nearly a million dollars. She won uh, a flight stakes and an Ansett stakes at Rose Hill. Yeah, the Ansett, that's this old Storm Queen, which is now the Arrowfield. But, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, she won the first running of that as a, when it was a, as a Group 1. Um, the first year they ran it as a Group One, she won that. She also won an English Million Dollar Race. She was uh, mm. she was an outstanding filly that sort of slips 
below the radar a bit. She was a plain little thing, but a very talented race from two. And uh, in fact, that Ansett Stakes was her last her last race start. She had an injury after that and uh, didn't race again. But uh, she was very good, very good. And so was Aragen, a five-time winner. She won close to half a million and there was a group one on her CV, the QTC Sires Produce. Yeah, there certainly was. She she was outstanding. She she ran after that. She ran fourth in a Doncaster on a wet track. She couldn't go a yard on. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a very very high quality filly who sadly got killed in a race mm-hmm. in Adelaide. But um, yep, high class filly she was. Liverstone Elaine was a fun horse, a cheap yearling who won almost $700,000. He ran second in an Epsom and second in a Doncaster to the great superimpose. Now, sadly, Bill, they took his Doncaster placing off him when he returned a positive. He hadn't completely absorbed substances that were contained in a bronchodilator. Uh, you'd been using for some time before the race. That was a hell of a shock. You thought you were in the clear. Uh, that was, I mean, it was just one of those things that hadn't been swabbed before. It was, in those days, there weren't, it, it, you know, we would, we would treat horses with or whatever was recommended um, by the veterinarians and, and we were following their protocols. But unfortunately, he threw up a positive in that race um didn't help him any because he came back and nearly beat superimposed again in, mm. in the epsom the following year yeah but um he was a great horse i mean he did run a lot of seconds but he he was a fantastic race horse from from two to seven years old and just tough and tried hard and mm. like most of those old horses he was pretty crotchety along the way different things but mm. he uh, he certainly gave the owners a lot of a lot of fun for a long time. That twenty thousand dollar fine you copped would have changed your feelings about bronchodilators. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. Um, I was pretty. Tried to keep it pretty pretty clean after that. It was it was it wasn't much fun going through the through the time of being charged. Uh, you know, with presenting your horse positive, and first they gave me. 12 months and then it was on appeal it was changed to a fine but certainly uh, it was a tough time tough time you know for, for, for myself and my family and I, not much really you can say about it it's one of those things that happens and you look back on it and you think well I shouldn't knock myself around that much over no. things like that. But going through it at the time as a young horse trainer was pretty difficult. Yeah. Bill, the bottom line is that the trainer is accountable no matter what. Absolutely. That's it. That's it. You had a horse called Kenwood Melody for only six runs before he was sent off to Hong Kong. You won a Stan Fox with him, Group 2, and you won a Caulfield Guineas with him, Group 1. He seemed to... Put it all together, didn't he? As a three-year-old, he just really hit a purple patch. He's a bit of an immature horse. He was a little, he was a cheeky little colt, and uh, he got he got beaten in a maiden at Gosford or somewhere, and mm. 
I said, oh, we've got to cut this horse. He just won't behave. And he came back as a gelding. He was the most lovely horse. Mm. And um, he just never just never looked back. He, he was an outstanding first crop of Royal Academy in this country, actually. Mm. But, um, yeah, he loved wet tracks. It was wet that day. He won the Ming Dynasty and, and – uh, and then he won the Stan Fox, and then he went to Caulfield, and it was pretty firm, the track. And I remember driving to track work at 4.30 in the morning, uh, going out, out along uh, Dandenong Road there, going to Caulfield. <laughs> as I was driving along, it started to rain, and as I closer I got to Caulfield, the harder it was raining. <laughs> I thought, oh, you beauty. There is a God. There is a God. <laughs> No, you're not usually looking for rain, but I was certainly looking for it that day. With Kenwood um, Melody, yep. Yeah, yeah. Now, Bill, what a good horse was Dignity Dancer, a gelding by Zabil who won six races, almost two million. He won the spring champion stakes with him in 1998 with Chris Munce. You turned him out after that, but, boy, didn't we see the best of him in Melbourne the following autumn. He won four straight stakes races culminating in the Australian Guineas with Jim Cassidy up. He was flying, wasn't he? He was flying. Um, we targeted Melbourne in that autumn because the tracks are always dry in Melbourne in the autumn and he didn't go in the wet. And when he got to Sydney after winning those races and, and got a big bonus for winning that Triple Crown down there, um, yeah, he came back to Sydney and, again, we ran into wet tracks in the autumn as we do. So. Uh, his wins, his win in that Australian Guineas was, you know, outstanding. He broke, he, he held the 2,000 metre track record for a long time at both Ramwick and Flemington. So he was an outstanding resource for sure, but he, he was, uh, yeah, very, very talented. You sent a young bloke to Melbourne with Dignity Dancer, who has since gone on to train a few Group 1 winners himself, John Thompson. Yes. No, yeah, one of my foremen, John Thompson. Yeah. Looked after him, very good horseman, very good trainer, mm. um, and a good friend. So uh, yeah, still still see a lot of John, and he's uh, he's doing a great job as a horse trainer going forward. And you could you could yeah, well, obviously even in those days you certainly could leave him in charge of a, of any thoroughbred, oh, knowing yeah. that it would be looked after the yeah. perfectly. Mm. Now the horse named after Tutankhamun's dad. Akhenaten, a very good horse who won a Doomban Cup in 2000 with Glenn Boss on board. Yeah, he, we just didn't have him quite ready for the, possibly even the first Golden Rose. Mm -hmm. But he was just half a length behind fitness. He was a big, strong colt. And then we got him to uh, Brisbane and and he won that Doomban Classic and, mm -hmm. um, and just led. And then we... And we said, oh, well, let's throw the dice and we'll run him in the Doomman Cup. Mm. And because uh, he was by snippets, so he wasn't, he was less likely to run the derby distance. And uh, he got away with that Doomman Cup. Uh, yes. Sort of led and good ride from Bossy, as you'd expect. And uh, mm. yeah, won it pretty easily, really. Let's Harry was a nice mare who won a Group 2 and a Group 3. And she might have been unlucky not to have won a Group 1 when she ran second to a Kusla Marie one day in the Winfield Classic. Uh, she took up a bit of space in the stewards report, I remember, after that race. Yeah, I remember she was slow out of the gate that day and um, 
I mean, she was a very, very good and high quality mare. Belonged to my parents. That so was it. Was nice. It was uh, great for them to have such a good horse. But um, yeah, she didn't win a Group One. She got beaten in Melbourne one day in a Show Day Cup, mm. and was a bit unlucky. And she was she definitely was stiff that day. That mm. Akushla Marie beat her at uh, you know I think she would have been giving her five kilos. And yeah. Just got a soft lead, and we were back and. It got away with it with her charging home down the middle. Mm. Yeah. Now, Bill, I seem to recollect and correct me if I'm wrong. Let's hurry. Did she have a big white blaze or a baldy she face? She did. Big, big bay mare with a baldy face. Yeah. Yeah. She stood out, she didn't did. she? Mm, she did. Yeah. Social rule was a tough old fella. Without being a superstar, he won ten races, sixteen placings, and he did win a couple of stakes races. He must have been a joy to have in the stable. Well, he was fantastic because he was the first horse I got from uh, Mr. Coanco, mm. and he he arrived and won his first three races. And every time we took him to a carnival somewhere, he always won a race. He won in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, um, and it was he was a really good horse to to have in those red and black colours uh, when I was first associated with the Guri. Mm. And now to the very classy General Nadim, who had 21 starts for 13 wins, four placings and 2.1 million. You had him for his first 16 starts. He won 12 of them, including a Magic Millions, a Lightning Stakes and a New Market. He was placed in a Caulfield Guineas and the Doombin 10,000. What a crackerjack sprinter. He really was, the, um, you know, clearly the best sprinter I ever trained, but um, just a lovely horse, beautiful action. Um, came out of the Queensland stable and Peter Moody said to me one day on the phone, he said, oh, he said, this two-year-old goes good. He said, it goes really good. And that was General Nadim, and he was right. It, uh, he was an outstanding sprinter. Mm. Outstanding sprinter. I recall seeing him at your Randwick stables one morning. I think I was doing a little piece for Sky Racing on the horse who'd just arrived from Queensland. And I can remember two things about him, Bill. His coat shone like satin. And while he wasn't a tall horse, he was powerful and he was muscular. And what a bum. What a great hind quarter he had. Yeah, he wasn't perfectly conformed in front, um, but he, he went through the sale and didn't get sold. So, um, you know, with like a $20,000 reserve on him, so, you know, it mm. tells you that he perhaps even in those days was no oil painting, but he was a he was a chestnut with a flaxen mane and tail. He was a flashy horse and just had the most wonderful action. Mm. Um, yeah, and... Was uh, wasn't wasn't hard to train. You didn't have to train him much. He was he was super super sprinter and a great went on to be a very very good stallion. Mm. And his mares are leaving some winners too. Yeah, because he injects so much speed into them. It's it's mm. like um, you know everyone loves those fast mares. By you know it's like it mm. just injects speed into the pedigree. It's uh, it's always mm. it's always a winner for me. Did you have to wean yourself? off the habitual lifestyle of a trainer or did you kick the habit fairly quickly? Um, funnily enough, no, I kicked it very quickly but 
but um, it's uh, it, it's it's pretty grueling lifestyle. It's it's hard to understand if you're not doing it, but it's that constant early mornings and six or seven days a week. It's it's pretty grueling on your body and your mind, and it's it's very it's very hard work. Mm-hmm. You know, horse trainers work extraordinary hours and uh, and under extreme pressure and stress, perhaps. Um, it's pretty constant. Wears you down. Well, eleven Group Ones and a long list of stakes winners leaves you with many wonderful memories, and I would imagine few regrets. No regrets, John. It was it was a great twenty five years of my life, and um, I'm still loving the racing industry and the breeding world, and and um, just have a bit more time on my hands to travel and uh, to enjoy life. You live in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, a stone's throw from Randwick Racecourse, and from there you and son James operate Mitchell Bloodstock, which has the patronage of some very loyal clients. You wouldn't change a thing at the moment. No, we're in a very good spot. Bill, I'd like to thank you uh, in hindsight for all the wonderful help you gave me uh, in my media days. As I said at the start, you were very accessible and very generous with your time. Haven't seen much of you in recent years, but this podcast has been on my short list for a long time and it's been great to catch up again. Nice to talk, John. Special guest, Bill Mitchell, on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. 